Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Zeneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of the most important news about China in just a few minutes a day with a nice tight daily newsletter curated by our own Jeremy Goldcorn and his small but capable team, a smartphone app, and of course, at our website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. A reminder that if you like the Seneca podcast, you should also be subscribing to the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, which offers timely updates of the most important news from the world of business, finance, technology, and more, all from our friends at Taishin, China's most trusted source for financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am back in New York City today, where I am joined in the flesh by an alarmingly hirsute Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, my man, where is this beard thing going? <laughs> it's going full rabbi hipster, Kaiser. You're going to join the Hasid? <laughs> well, our office in New York is in Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> right, that's true, but not in Williamsburg, where they all congregate. Anyway, today on Seneca, we welcome back Lyle Goldstein, associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. He has been kind enough to ride the train down here to New York today to talk about a topic uh, which is on many people's minds these days, what to do about North Korea, especially as involves China. As many listeners will recall, uh, Lyle was on the show last year to talk about his book, Meeting China Halfway, and we're eager to hear how he brings his very unconventional thinking to the specific issue of North Korea and its nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Lyle, welcome back to Seneca. Gents, I'm glad to be back. Uh, so glad to be with your audience. It's an important time to discuss uh, the Korean issue and, and U.S.-China relations. Well, Lyle, wonderful to have you back on Seneca, um, like you said, especially at this very important moment. So you published a piece recently in The National Interest where you lay out what you think the U.S. ought to do. But let's let the suspense build a little bit here and leave your actual prescription for later in the podcast and start with this instead. Since, since you are an expert on military hardware, you know, being a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and so forth, you're, you're very familiar with the military capabilities of our potential adversaries, especially, you know, in the Western Pacific. So give us a clear sense of where North Korea actually is in terms of its offensive capability. What does this latest test last week actually mean, the test of what Kim Jong-un has claimed is an ICBM, which flew for an estimated 37 minutes. How long do we have before Kim is actually able to target major American cities with, with nuclear weaponry? Well, Kaiser, thanks. That's getting to the heart of the matter. It's I think it's sooner than, than anyone had appreciated even a few years ago. I think uh, if we looked even three or four years back, people were saying this was decades away, and, and that, I think, is certainly not the case. I think within a couple of years... Uh, these weapons will be able to target the West Coast. Uh, that is very disturbing, of course. But on the other hand, we can see that this capability has been incrementally improving. And I say that because, of course, they've had a, a nuclear uh, capability since 2006. 
But for some years, they have been able to range uh, cities, obviously, in South Korea, but also those in Japan as well, and American bases there too. So I, I do think we need to understand that our forces, our people, uh, the populations in allied states of great significance, uh, we're talking about Tokyo, after all, have been ranged now for some years. So it's not entirely a new situation, I would put it that way. I, one other thing I would say, Kaiser, I think we need to characterize this capability carefully. You said offensive capability. I think many people who work on nuclear strategy, as I have for a long time, would say these are deterrent capabilities, first and foremost, and that's our expectation. One, you know, Which one, means one can what never exactly? say never, but, but I think you... Well, looking at North Korean behavior over the course of decades, we do see a fair amount of risk-taking and a, a lot of disturbing behavior, but... And this is a big but. We haven't seen North Korea really cross that red line and uh, undertake large-scale military operations, something that would mean a full-scale war. So, I mean, of course, we need to be cautious. Of course, we need to work on our own deterrent and watch this very carefully. However, what I want to say is, you know, I think many of us in in the defense analytical community are emphasizing that uh, we have confidence that deterrence will be effective with North Korea. Great. Um, So in your estimation, since assuming office, has Trump been more of an accelerant to the situation or a retardant? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, Of course, it's only been some several months. And, uh, you know, these these weapon systems are not built overnight, not by any stretch. And and I think, you know, looking back over the course of of decades and and many administrations and and, uh, really many, in my view, kind of wrongheaded policies through the years in different countries, in China also, uh, but also the United States have led us to this day. Undoubtedly, I'm perturbed by some things I've seen from the new administration. Of course, all of us wonder about the... uh, propensity to to resort to foreign policy by tweet you know that that sounds inherently <laughs> dangerous in the nuclear age you know on the other hand uh, even some things that were said early on in the administration uh, for instance i think that trump had said he he was willing to meet with kim jong un uh, to me that's that's quite positive uh, we need to we need to have dialogue uh, um, you don't got you don't have to like the person you're talking to but but in the nuclear age uh, such talks are necessary um, I think it's necessary yeah. to correct you, though. That I mean, the diplomacy by tweet—it's modern-day presidential, don't you? Don't you read? <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, Trump did draw uh, a line in the sand, a red line, um, early on in his administration, saying by tweet uh, that the North will not obtain the capabilities to strike the continental United States. He just said it won't happen. But now it pretty much has happened. I mean, you, you you said that the missile probably can reach Alaska. So, I mean, does the U.S. have any good unilateral options? Well put, Jeremy. Yeah, I think that re- really there are uh, very few options. And I, I dare say there are no military options. I, I would be quite emphatic about that, having looked at the military balance on the peninsula and in the Western Pacific for a long time. It's really very stark. And the casualty estimates for even sort of the most optimistic scenarios uh, run run into the millions, really. So, you know, to me, this is just completely unacceptable. And, and really, I don't see a lot of benefit. Although, you know, one, one can argue that there is a certain bargaining strategic benefit from, if you will, bluffing, uh, acting that you may consider force, even though you don't really consider force. But to me, uh, such benefits are minor. And of course, there can be uh, major downsides, obviously, involving misperception and so forth, uh, triggering what you're trying to prevent. So, yes, I, I, I would agree, Jeremy. I think that 
uh, initial uh, statement was a was a misstep. I I wonder if the president was fully informed of the situation. I, I we, we would doubt it, of course. Um, <laughs> I, I, we, we know the answer to that. All right. Well, as, no I comment. Say, yeah. <laughs> so. Do you think that the end goal for our policy vis-a-vis North Korea should be complete denuclearization or something maybe more modest? I mean, I would seriously question whether Kim Jong-un would ever give up his nuclear weapons. I mean, he's he's witnessed the fate of other leaders around the world who have cooperated with the U.S. and uh, given up their WMDs to find later on that they're ousted from t- power and they meet with, you know, rather inglorious and rather grim ends. I mean, hauled out of a spider hole and hanged in a jail or dragged out of a ditch and shot unceremoniously in, in the case of Gaddafi. Uh, so Kim's people have actually raised that whole scenario in track two dialogues to, do you think it's even remotely possible that he will give up his nukes? Absolutely. This is a important question. I, I think that there's good reason, of course, to be skeptical. And I think that um, the most are, you know, if you do, took a survey of, um, uh, Asia-Pacific security specialists, I think the balance would say that, that no, that is no longer achievable and we shouldn't even be uh, aiming for that. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's good reason to think that a major motivation for this program has been really uh, not just deterrence, but really um, internal prestige issues, meaning, you know, if, you, if your regime doesn't have a lot to be proud of, then this is um, a good leg to stand on, at least for a while. So, for those reasons, yes, one could be skeptical that denuclearization is possible. On the other hand, you know, I think we shouldn't rule out the possibility. Uh, after all, North Korea has gone into serious negotiations on, on numerous occasions, uh, more than a few. And some of these have, have led to, um, you know, major actions on both sides. Let's put it that way. We can't call them a success. But, you know, let's just say saying that North Korea is not willing to negotiate at all, I think, is, is, is wrong. So from that point of view, I think we need to try. Moreover, I mean, just to state the obvious, you know, this is an extremely backward, extremely isolated country that even I think Kim Jong-un and the people around him could realize that the country, if it could be made secure, could be much better off and, and in that sense, much more secure. In other words, they can have nuclear weapons and be impoverished and still exist. But but for how long, if they could be, let's say, wealthy, stable and have nuclear weapons too, uh, I think that would be uh, much more advantageous for the Kim regime. Now, for example, I was talking with a um, very um, wise East Asia specialist who said that North Korea is trying to morph into something like Vietnam. In other words, that's the way its society and regime is moving, you know, with a kind of authoritarian communist. I mean, you know, as it were, a little China. I'm just saying for, for the long-term stability of the regime, I think that it is conceivable that they could be enticed out of this, uh, out of this major rat hole. Hmm. What about? Let's talk about um, China's role in all of this. Um, and I guess the first thing we should understand are what are China's actual attitudes towards the North Korean regime uh, within the leadership, uh, within the PLA, and among elites more broadly in Chinese society. What can you tell us about how China regards the Democratic People's Republic of Korea? Hmm. Well, I like the way you put that, Jeremy, because Chinese foreign policy formulation is immensely complicated, and it's it's a how to put it. Well, it's it's hard for an outsider to try to appreciate it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there are so many inputs. Also, it's just uh, very difficult to tease out this position. By the way, I would recommend for those of you who want to understand kind of the latest, very good uh, English language explanation of China's position, I would recommend in particular the piece by uh, Madame Fu Ying 
a, a senior Chinese foreign policymaker who who published a piece recently with Brookings, uh, which I think is a very good statement of China's position and where it's gone. But back to your question, look, I think we can talk about a kind of general sentiment in Chinese society that I'm sure you have appreciated, as I have too, that is very dismissive of North Korea, even derisive, uh, kind of like a, a little brother or something like some, something who, who has gone, you know, completely wrong uh, in every way uh, and is, is not grateful to China and so forth, uh, can't seem to uh, understand the Chinese model despite endless attempts at coaching and so forth. So, uh, you know, and a tendency to just kind of almost make, f- uh, you know, I, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, make fun of North Korea as the problem kid who just can't get it. And um, of course, the, but, the nickname, uh, uh, Jin Pang, the little fatty the third, right? For okay, Kim right, Jong-un. right, yeah. of course. But, um, you know, look, among elites, though, I would say they're much more circumspect and, because, and, and that's because they understand the enormous stakes that are there and have a, also a uh, kind of cool sense of China's interests. And here, what I found, and, and by the way, I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to get my hands on the most important kind of uh, documents, and documents written by Chinese elites on North Korea. And what I found is this debate. Uh, you might call it, uh, in Chinese, you have the uh, Fang Chao versus the uh, Bao Chao. And Fang Chao being, being the, the school that wants to abandon North Korea and the Bao Chao meaning wants to protect North Korea. Uh, and this has been really a very hot debate. And uh, you can find uh, prominent examples on both sides. But my sense is that after a, a rather long period of several years, where the, let's say, abandoned North Korea school has been, not in a sentence, but, but has been kind of, let's say, ha- had a prominent position. But my sense is that the, the wheel is shifting back toward those who are saying, who are insisting that, that North Korea needs to be protected somehow, that, it, that the integrity of the North Korean state is, is so critical to China that they cannot imagine a world without North Korea. So, you know, I, you know to lay out China's interests very basically, that what, what are these people standing on? The, the, as it were, the Bao Chao, the Protect North Korea School. Uh, they are chiefly, uh, first and foremost, they want to preserve stability. And here, you know, many people talk about the worry about refugees. But, you know, let's not forget how close North Korea is to Beijing, to, you know, the very center of, uh, of, uh, of Chinese political of, life. Of Chinese yeah. political life. So, you know, this is not, the problem is not at all remote. It is, it is acute for China. Uh, that leads to the second reason to protect North Korea, that is, is a strategic buffer. And indeed, not only, I think, would China sort of strategically and militarily have difficulty with the concept of reunification in that sense, but think of a U.S.-led reunification that many people have said puts American troops, uh, as it were, on the border. Right on the Yalu. Uh, yeah. Right on the Yalu, right. And we know that was a big issue in 1950. Um now, China also does absolutely want to prevent nuclear proliferation, and I don't want to suggest that China is comfortable with with uh, having a, a North Korean nuclear yeah. weapon. Not at all, uh, you know. And you you can hear the Chinese very uh, passionately arguing for nonproliferation. So, uh, you know, they are caught on the horns of a dilemma. But uh, you know, for now, the the buffer and stability argument are are outweighing the. Uh, proliferation argument. That said, though, even if, you know, I, I really, and we can get into various ways that China's position might be changed or, or how it could change. But in my view, um, I think it is a, um, 
rather a fool's errand to expect China to uh, clamp down hard on North Korea. I don't see that happening for a few reasons. Well, we'll get into that in, okay. in a bit because okay, that's sure. all part of your argument. But let's flip the question around very quickly here and, and ask how do people in the DPRK, especially elites, insofar as we, we know, how do they feel about China in recent years? Okay, good point that, the, you know, the, the, you're right that there's a sort of a tendency to talk about North Korea without thinking what North Koreans might think. And, and uh, we, we shouldn't um, engage in that fallacy. Uh, but I want to say up front, I'm not a, a Korea specialist. I don't speak Korean and I'm not privy to any kind of special information in that regard. So I'm just reading the, the press, uh, the American press and Chinese press and so forth and, and just the statements there. But absolutely, you know, there, we can say there's a history of discord. People may not realize I was just going through a little bit of the history myself. And, and um, it's kind of amazing to consider that uh, there have been, I think it was in the, was it in the 1990s, I think, um, maybe 1992 to, to the year 2000, when you didn't have a single visit by any North Korean leader to China. So there have been periods before where there have been major breaks in China North Korean relations. And this is a, uh, a major problem. And, uh, you know, it, I think it can be said almost without a doubt that we're in such a period now that, that North Korean and Chinese relations are fraught, uh, very tense. And we saw a bit of that, I think, came out in the uh, percolated into the Western press in, I believe it was in May, when there was a kind of um, rather uh, nasty statement about China in the North Korean press. Now, that's very unusual. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, that shows how uh, deep things have gone. Uh, and I've seen some of that reflected into the Chinese uh, discussion. So these relations are tense right now. And, and this is a major problem. I mean, you know, closing the border, yeah. cutting off the coal uh, purchases and all, all these all these other things. I mean, does Korea feel sort of the fresh sting of recent betrayal, even maybe more acutely than it does sort of that long-term enemy? I, I, I mean, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but I, I feel like uh, it's human nature to feel even a greater affront at somebody who was for a long time somebody who you relied on and as as a an ally who suddenly seems to abandon you or turn against you. I mean, the the ire might even be greater directed toward China. That's true, Kaiser. Absolutely, and there's a lot of evidence. I would say that these some of these feelings are not particularly new. I mean, I think it was even during the Cultural Revolution that uh, Kim Il Sung ridiculed Mao's Cultural Revolution, and there were even, I believe, there were some clashes on the borders hmm. uh, at that time. So you know, these relations have had their difficulties. Deng Xiaoping was said to uh, revile Kim Jong Il, so. You know, the, there are these problems. And then I, I would emphasize this period when, and this would be, I think, in the mid-90s, when really the perception of North Korea was they had the, the rug pulled out from them. They, they were getting a lot of aid from both Russia and China. And, and, you know, it was rather sudden that both Moscow and Beijing began to demand market prices and, and started to shut down aid programs and so forth. And remember, there was this period of starvation in North Korea. So one can imagine that left the seeds that maybe are now being harvested of kind of resentment uh, and betrayal. And it is... You know, you see, I saw, for example, this was a, a couple of years ago now, but this was in the uh, Global Times, one of China's uh, foreign affairs papers, and, and it was a, <laughs> that's that's one way of putting it, Lyle. It was sure. a, can, can I can I call it a jingoistic tabloid? Uh, I would not <laughs> affiliated to the People's Daily. I, I don't. I'm not sure. I agree. I think it's, uh, you know, there, there are some. Uh, 
you know, more balanced pieces and a lot of academics actually publishing Global Times too. So I, I yeah, don't know if I would go hawkish, that far. But, a hawkish tabloid. They're, they're, they're fairly hawkish. Uh, the, but, but this paper was actually saying, and I, I'll be glad to uh, give people the citation here on this, but uh, it was saying it is conceivable that North Korean-China relations could reach a point that was reached in Russia-China relations or Russia, uh, China-Soviet relations in the 1960s. Now, that's a polite way of saying that they could be on the brink of war. Right. Okay. Wow. So, I mean... Th- that's you know, really what I was getting at with th- that This question. is actually the possibility. Now, nobody, I think, Chinese don't want to talk about the possibility that any of these fearsome weapons could be aimed at them. But, of course, that possibility exists. And so, I think China, from what I read, is in a position of saying they are not willing to go there. They're not willing to make North Korea an enemy, whatever that, you know, and, and the policies that would entail. So what are what are their options? What can Beijing do? I mean, not not in terms of, of doing the U.S.'s bidding, but just in terms of Beijing's pure strategic interests, what can they do? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, to be honest, I think that China has made some, a lot of mistakes here. Um, and you know, and I, I think people would see that I'm I'm somebody who uh, sees frankly a lot of things to admire in Chinese foreign policy. So this is kind of a there are some exceptions here. But I would say this first of all, this sense of pulling the rug out that they were too abrupt in their turn toward the South. And look, China's relations with South Korea have blossomed, and everybody knows it. Do you think that the North Koreans, you know, took umbrage at seeing repeated summits? I think there were several between uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Park Geun-hye. And I think over time, what it led to was a kind of imbalance that became really poisonous. And uh, this is getting back to what, Kaiser, you were saying before, that there's a kind of this uh, real a real anger, a real bitterness in the North that they've kind of been left out despite the blood that they uh, shed in common and so forth. So what I'm saying is that I think, you know, and, and here I'm, I'm following actually, actually some Chinese scholars who are writing this in, in 2016 timeframe, but that, that China's policy has not been sufficiently balanced, that they have been uh, really, that they have alienated the North. Now, once they've alienated the North to such a degree, you know, their options become more and more limited. And so, you know, of course, one could say, well, they should just do what Washington says, that is, clamp down with these very hard sanctions. But of course, that immediately puts them into this antagonistic relationship where, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say Beijing is under some sort of military threat, but rather you face the possibility of a rogue regime that is maybe on the verge of collapse, but maybe on the verge of, if you will, uh, mass national suicide or, or, or some kind of extraordinary action of desperation. What and of about, course, in, in the nuclear era, we cannot, we cannot go there. What about, um, there was a PLA officer who took an interview with Channel News Asia recently, a Singaporean TV station, and he claimed that there are no communications between the Chinese and North Korean militaries. Is that something you can attest to? And does that sound likely? You, you actually know that guy. What's his name again? Yes, this is uh, Colonel Zhou Bo. He's a oh, right, uh, right. very wise senior officer in the PLA, and um, I think he's in charge of the international department, maybe at Academy of Military Sciences. I'm not sure. Maybe he was there, but he's very well informed about the Korean situation. And uh, yes, I think this is a credible statement. It, I do also find it quite extraordinary, and I was somewhat amazed that it that news did not uh, filter out further. I mean, you know, one I guess one would want to verify it because. There may have been some caveats on it. I would have to study the actual quote. I haven't seen it. But 
China has had military contact with North Korea. That you know, they have not been on a large scale. I'm not aware of like any kind of joint exercises or anything like that. But they do, you know, one thing they have done over the years is continue with various ceremonies and they maintain, I believe, uh, cemeteries and so forth, commemorations uh, going back many decades to the wartime. So, you know, that would be a rather considerable affront and uh, of, of some symbolic importance. Look, I'm not naive. I'm not trying to suggest that we can only focus on carrots, and I know we'll come to that later, but and I do think that's where our major focus should be. But as far as, it, as sticks go, you know, I, I would dare say that in the scope of options for both China and the United States, that China may have a better understanding of what sticks should be deployed a better understanding than we do. After all, they they know Pyongyang much better than we do. I don't I don't doubt that for a minute. We'll talk about some of the sticks that the U.S. is interested in seeing China uh, use on on Pyongyang. China claims it has very little leverage. Many U.S. officials claim it has still quite a bit. What about sanctioning Chinese financial institutions that are facilitating Pyongyang's foreign currency transactions? I've often heard the claim that something like 80% of commerce uh, that the North engages in is conducted through China, uh, especially through Chinese banks. Isn't it a good option for China to be able to crack down on on, uh, Chinese banks' What do you think of that? Well, here's why I don't think that's a good option. I mean, for either China or the United States, um, to state the obvious, I think a lot of Chinese would be hurt by this. I mean, that's that's obvious. But I mean, it's not uh, we're talking about an area of China that is uh, has been going through hard times for a long time. And so they actually regard their, uh, you know, what what small trading relations do exist there as, as a you know critical part of their development. I mean, I just did a study recently on uh, part of Jilin province, which really is banking hard. They've had the high-speed rail line built out to the very border with North Korea, and they're banking hard on, on the viability of that as a trading route, uh, reaching out to not only North Korea, but South Korea, Japan, Russia as well. And so, oh, Huchun, you're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. Uh, I think... I think you know, to, this may sound like pie in the sky to us, but I mean, the, the, we are talking about a big market when we're talking about Northeast Asia. So, I mean, I don't think those plans are so ridiculous. So, anyway, the, some Chinese would obviously be hurt in terms of bread and butter issues, but there's the bigger issue, right? And that is, uh, even if these, well, first of all, one can doubt the effectiveness of these uh, issues. I mean, after all, a lot of countries have been trying to kind of sanctions-proof their own economies for a long time. And that's not just North Korea, but uh, we can also say China has probably been engaged in kind of sanction-proofing Russia, certainly. Uh, they all have been watching U.S. foreign policy for a long time. And so I don't doubt a ability and even a willingness, frankly, to uh, to eat rocks, uh, to, in other words, to to go on without, despite having, you know, some of the luxury goods or the, the these goods that are coming through these uh, kind of um, small trading relationships. But still, I think even if these sanctions were effective, that is, do they bring, bring the North Korean regime to a point where it has to make some very tough decisions? As other national security analysts have pointed out, that's an extremely dangerous place to put a rogue nuclear proliferator. I mean, I, I cut my teeth on this as a um, graduate student. I worked on dissertation about you know, literally about rogue states. And and one of the conclusions from my work on it was that you do not want to drive a desperate person into a corner. 
because then the actual choice of uh, you know making really desperate decisions is before them. It's and the, there is some history. Of, is out of war. Yeah, don't I mean, don't right, uh, you have leave to, them a, an escape right, route. Right, you yeah. have to give your adversary uh, a way out. Um, and you know, look, you don't have to be a, a specialist in East Asian cultures to know that. Uh, face is important. And here, what you know, I'm arguing we've got to give Kim Jong-un and really China as well some face here. We can't, uh, if we just try to drive uh, Kim Jong-un to a corner and humiliate him, we are really, in, we are really, uh, how to put it, skating on the ice of, of the apocalypse. Um, let's talk about THAAD, the terminal high altitude air defense system that the U.S. has uh, begun to install in South Korea apparently in response to uh, North, the North's continued missile testing. Has the deployment of THAAD made the U.S. or South Korea any safer? Uh, and how has it complicated matters, especially with China, which, of course, uh, was furious over the THAAD deployment? Right. Well, Jeremy, this is a very, um, how to put it, a kind of tricky side piece to this whole equation. My general view in a word is that it's it's not terribly significant because uh, the capabilities of the system are quite limited um, so that it would not be you know a major military significance that is the number of missiles that could be intercepted would not change the overall picture of, of a combat um, even if it works perfectly so that's why I'm quite skeptical but the larger I think, significance, unfortunately, has been that that this uh, issue has become tied up uh, not only in uh, South Korean domestic politics in a, in a kind of uh, troubling way, but also in U.S.-China relations. And here I will tell you as a, as a China analyst, a China defense analyst, that China has been really focused, um, I dare say obsessed with the issue of missile defense for many years, uh, I would say even decades. Um, and part of that is a legacy of China's nuclear strategy, which is minimal deterrence. And so if you're relying on a force of some dozens of missiles, then, you know, it, it really does change the equation. If the adversary uh, has uh, some kind of viable missile defense, then suddenly your deterrent is uh, rendered impotent. So there are some major risks here, including in the big picture, that is, China may see Thad and decide to reappraise its entire approach to nuclear strategy. And, and some indeed do believe, and I've seen some evidence for this myself, that China could um, choose to respond by leaving its minimal deterrent policy behind and then you know, thus building a force of some thousands of nuclear weapons. And that, I think, is very troubling. I mean, this means the at a minimum, it means the start of a hugely expensive uh, new arms race that we would uh, wish to avoid. Uh, my Can, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Is, there, is one of those signs, uh, earlier in the year, we saw a new type of uh, long-range missile. I think it was the Dongfang-17. There were photos of it being driven around a city in the northeast that emerged on the Chinese internet, which, I mean, it appeared to be staged in some way. They were driving through city streets. Is that is that a sign of, of China's possible appetite for growing its nuclear options? Yeah, the missile pictures I saw rolling around, and I wrote some about this, were, was a DF-41. 41, sorry. DF-41 yeah. is a very major development because this is a, um, a very large ICBM uh, capable of hitting the United States, uh, the whole United States, uh, maybe even including Florida. Sorry, folks. Um, 
And this is a Mar-a-Lago, this is, maybe. <laughs> yeah, this is quite a significant development uh, for Chinese nuclear forces because you know it wasn't that long ago that China was in a bit of a bind on nuclear forces. That is, it maybe could strike the United States, but it wasn't with a kind of uh, how to put it a hundred percent probability. Now, uh, over the last decade, China really has transitioned into having a, a uh, that kind of capability. But here's the nub, Jeremy, is that a lot of those forces as they exist, are located, now deployed up to the north, right? That would be expected, right? It's the shorter distance. Sure. Uh, so they are up, they're, they're actually right against the Russian border. And you, as you can imagine, that makes for some interesting conversations between the Russians and Chinese. There's actually been some reporting about that in the Russian press. But, but uh, this is one reason why the THAAD deployment is troubling, because it is exactly that vector, that is the northeast uh, vector, firing uh, from China, which is the easiest and most logical for Chinese nuclear forces. So that's why really it's seen as a danger. So, you know, one of the inadvertent results of this THAAD issue may be indeed that China invests much more heavily in some other nuclear weaponry, uh, for example, the submarine-based forces, which, by the way, are seem to be located at least partly in the South. Now, I work for Naval War College, so, you know, I think some some Navy guys may be excited that there's activity in this area. You know, it gives us something to do, uh, hunting each other's submarines and so forth. But it, this is not good for uh, for world politics or for U.S.-China relations, for, for nuclear stability in general. It's a, these are very expensive, dangerous systems, uh, and uh, we, we do not want to fuel a uh, 21st century uh, arms race that could be uh, just as uh, dangerous as uh, what we've witnessed before. Speaking of U.S.-China relations uh, in this modern era, uh, we alluded earlier to the modern-day presidential approach of Twitter diplomacy. Uh, China, of course, has been in the odd position of being praised uh, in one tweet and then condemned usually kind of passive-aggressively in an, another, often within days. Um, how is this falling on Beijing's ears? How do they, w- what's your sense of how they see this president? I mean, all I hear is, you know, uh, unpredictable, just too difficult to draw a beat on. Right. I think that it's, um, you know, it is disturbing. I think many people have, um, you know, m- many, many people, I think the entire foreign policy establishment has, has let it be known that they don't appreciate that. I'm talking about the American establishment, and, and those opinions are often mirrored in the Chinese uh, foreign policy establishment that yeah. this is, you know, goes against um, what we've learned about great power relations and arms racing, crisis management, and so forth. We need to be exceedingly careful, very cautious, even with what we say and especially with what we do. Uh, so, yes, you know, I think um, uh, the unpredictability but is very dis- difficult. They, but they but discount you, this guy, right? I mean, they discount what he says, don't they? I mean, I hope they, they, they Well, they there do. have been some. Um, we can go back, and I've, I've just been looking into this a little bit myself, but, I mean, it's we have to transport ourselves back to December to remember the phone call, the infamous phone call and so forth, and that really set off giant alarm bells in Beijing. And I remember... Um, the Tsai Ing-wen phone call. Yeah, China shortly after that took a U.S. Navy drone. And, you know, it's easy to kind of laugh about that now. Uh, actually, yesterday I was looking at some of the drones. One that, of the, that was the underwater drone, right? right. The, yes, yes. Uh, but, I mean, if you think about that, that's a kind of profound escalation in an ongoing uh, military technical rivalry 
of a quite a disturbing character. Now we're laughing about it today because things turned around quite quickly, and uh, after Mar-a-Lago, things seem to be headed in a much more positive direction. I think we're all relieved about that. But I have no illusions that contemporary U.S.-China relations are built on a stable basis. I don't think they are. I think we need to work much harder at that. I think this could all, you know, the present kind of, as it were, almost stability could fall apart very quickly. And I fear that. North Korea, once again, will be this kind of um, break point, as it has been in the past. Let's not forget, you know, this is the one issue that has got the U.S. and China into a war that neither ever wanted. So it's possible it could uh, poison the relationship thoroughly again. What about and by the-, the way, there are, there are many other issues that could do so as well. But I mean, this is uh, costs. You know, we need to... Um, in social science, we like this term opportunity cost. And it's, you know, many people want to confront China now over North Korea, but they don't realize that there could be huge costs in other aspects of the relationship. You know, what if China, for example, says, well, fine, but to hell with the Paris Treaty, we're out. You know, there, one could think of probably a dozen different areas where China could poke us in the ribs if it wants to as a result of kind of U.S. strong arming on this uh, North Korea issue. Right. So what, what about some of the other important actors in the North Korean nuclear issue besides China and the U.S. who we always focus on? Let's start with Japan and then maybe talk about South Korea with the election of the new president, um, Moon Jae-in who is decidedly less hawkish. So uh, let's start with Japan and then talk about maybe South Korea's goals and what they're willing to do to achieve those goals. Yeah, I'd also like to talk about Russia, too, because yeah, um, I had uh, just been to Russia back in April. I know Russia is a hugely controversial issue now in the, in the U.S. domestic politics, <laughs> so I, I, I probably am touching a third rail, but I, I, I was well, just... Well, as long as you put it on your security clearance form, Lyle. I, that I do, that I do. I, I was just, uh, I was in Moscow in April, and I was uh, asking, que- I was meeting with... Uh, a lot of specialists on North Korea and trying to... Oddly enough, the Russians may get more entree in Pyongyang than anybody else these days because, as, as we've discussed, China, the Chinese are getting boxed out increasingly, but there are a lot of Russians in Pyongyang. So anyway, we can... But you we'll want to talk Japan about Japan? First. Yeah, Japan, then South right. Korea, then Russia, maybe. Sure. I, I uh, confess I'm no expert on Japan's policies, really. Uh, I, I know that they have been uh, pulled in various directions, often uh, by kind of uh, humanitarian issues like the abductees, for example, that was a major issue. But I, I'll tell you, and I, again, I'm not expert on this, but I think there are some opportunities there. Uh, you know, that said, Japan is also under huge threat. I mean, I have to say, Americans are all rightly extremely concerned about where these missiles now can target. But as I said earlier in the show, uh, Tokyo, I think, is a very probable target for a North Korean weapon. And, and that, you know, is tremendously disturbing. To me, it behooves Tokyo to to be creative in these circumstances. And I think they have some opportunities there. Although, of course, there's some historical bad blood with Japan and the Korean Peninsula. Yet, we have seen occasionally uh, some glimmers of um, interesting opportunities. And no doubt, you know, Japan does have the resources and the technology to kind of that it could dangle as a carrot. Uh, among others. And I would like to see Japan be quite proactive in that sense. I think Japan's uh, instinct, as we know over and over again, is to harken back to the U.S.-Japan security alliance and, and that, that it remains strong. In my view, that relationship is very strong. We needn't worry about it so much. I mean, it needs to be supported. But still, we need to now think outside the box, be more creative, maintain the alliance, and yet lean forward with some carrots for uh, in order to try to solve what honestly, is an existential problem for uh, for Japan. And what about South Korea now? I mean, after the, the new election of the president, who is sort of, you know, sunshine policy all over again, what's what's going on with his thinking right now? 
Well, Kaiser, I'm glad you bring us around to that because um, Korean domestic politics turn out to be extremely interesting and important, obviously. Now, I mean, fairly common sense that from the North Korean point of view, it really matters who's sitting in the Blue House. In other words, who, who is running the show in Seoul? And, and we've seen that the tensions, in my view, have, have clearly been building under conservative governments in Seoul. And, uh, you know, you just think back to the um, recent uh, tenure of Lee Myung-bak, and uh, when uh, we don't want to put all the responsibility on him and so forth, but during the early years of his tenure, and by the way, this was after President Obama had made clear that he wanted to extend a hand to uh, some of these rogue regimes, but uh, things went very badly on the peninsula not long after uh, President Lee kind of reined in the sunshine policy. So, I mean, that to me is a intentions have been there with these conservative regimes. So what I'm, this is a long way of saying that with the new president of a uh, more progressive stripe in Seoul, I think there are real possibilities and I hope they will be fully explored. And here I'm, I'm quite encouraged by Moon. I mean, I think he has the right background to be a peacemaker. He, I believe he was uh, special forces. So, I mean, this is a man who understands military issues, but look at what he's already done. I mean, he's made an overture, which I found uh, very creative, very surprising. Uh, on the Olympics, I believe he he had offered maybe even to hold some venues in North Korea. Certainly, and maybe I think he proposed some joint uh, teams in various sports. To me, that's precisely the kind of outreach that's needed. And uh, indeed, I you know I would like to see the Sunshine Policy uh, reinstated. Look, it's not again we, we're presented with bad choices. Nobody wants to reward bad behavior, and yet we have to find a way to live with this unruly uh, adolescent. And maybe that's the right analogy. And I'm not saying anything about my adolescent at home, but we cannot throw this problem away. We cannot, like, discard it. And moreover, if we try, we may well be destroyed by in the ensuing flare-up. So we have to deal with the situation as it is. And it seems to me that President Moon, and, and you know, it's very early in his tenure, so one would not want to come to any grand conclusions, but it seems to me there is great opportunity here. And I would like to see American diplomats, Chinese diplomats working overtime with the lights on late, maybe Russian diplomats too and Japanese to to try to move forward in this very delicate time. So let's talk about the Russians then. Let's get back to them. Okay. Um, I think there is a very important Russian piece to this puzzle. This is I, I made this argument in Moscow, actually, recently, and, and they were fairly receptive. And I've heard from other quarters there, too. But uh, look, I, I mean, Russia, is a, we know it's a huge issue right now, and, and many people think the Kremlin is, is uh, evil incarnate and so forth. I'm not uh, in that camp. You know, I think we, we have to work with Russia for, for this, basically the same reasons we need to work with China. There are many touch points that we need to uh, get along with Russia. And I mean, Syria has talked about a lot, uh, Ukraine a bit. But really, I think we have not adequately explored the degree to which Russia could play a key role in the Korean Peninsula. After all, um, Russia has good relations with South Korea, and they have decent relations with North Korea. And that's I want to emphasize that point. I think I said this before, but that we know China has... Their relationship is really fraught with North Korea, and yet Russia's has been somewhat more stable. I think there are real reasons why Russia could play a key role. Just for example, Putin actually has met with leaders of North Korea, not with Kim Jong-un, but he met with his father, uh, actually. He also, the Russians had extended an invite to Kim Jong-un to Moscow. So that's, you know, that's quite critical. Uh, what I'm saying is there is a relationship there. Now, uh, to bring this... Uh, 
fully round. And, and here, you know, I may be touching that third rail again. But I do believe Russia badly wants to get out from its isolation. Badly. I mean, we've, there's plenty of signs of that. They may not admit it, but they, I think absolutely they would like to, um, as it were, become a, uh, you know, a full member of the world community. Could, if they were ma- able to make critical breakthroughs on the Korean peninsula, could they then, you know, redeem w- w- themselves? Yeah, could they <laughs> redeem themselves, in effect? I, I'm not saying this is, this is something easy, but it, they, could they extend uh, a hand to Kim Jong un? Let's just say, if, you know, for example, thinking outside the box, Russia, not known for its, um, economic prowess per se, but is known for its military prowess, right? And a willingness to stand up to the West, as they've done in Syria, right? I mean, in Syria, Russia has effectively proven that it's willing to stand against, you know, world opinion and and uh, American opinion for sure, and is willing to um, take risks and do what's necessary to protect its ally. Well, that's precisely what North Korea would be looking for, that kind of protection. So is this a circumstance where Russia could extend some kind of a protective umbrella over North Korea, now chip in some resources from interested parties like Japan. And here you have this interesting case for, I I haven't really elaborated this much, but I wonder, you know, could we say that China and the U.S. have failed to handle this problem, so maybe we let Russia and Japan, Russia providing the security and Japan the resources as a way to kind of break out of this, uh, you know, as it were, this death spiral that we're in. Anyway, it's, it's kind of creative approach. I think Russia has an incentive. Um, Now, to me, I mean, last thing I'll say here is maybe it's time, you know, we've spent so much time talking about Russia and Syria. I wonder, you know, I've suggested that we make some uh, inquiries whether Russian diplomacy, and, you know, I think they have a justified reputation as skillful diplomats. I'm talking about Foreign Minister Lavrov, for example, uh, whether he could apply some energy to the North Korean problem. I mean, Russia stands to gain a lot if if they can uh, pacify this issue. Well, let's, let's let's turn now fully to your own policy prescriptions, to your own creative thinking on this. Uh, anyone listening will have already gotten the broad outlines of it, I think, but uh, let, let's see if I have this basically right. So you wrote a paper last spring where you make the case that rather than pushing China to join us in isolating North Korea, you would advocate diplomatic engagement, direct talks with the U.S., pushing China to take the lead on eventual denuclearization. And in a piece in the national interest that, that I alluded to earlier, you argued more recently that we should take up China's suggestion that the U.S. and South Korea halt their joint annual military exercises and that this would be sufficient to get North Korea to talk Turkey. Uh, so let's take us through your thought processes on, on what you recommend and how you got to your current position. Okay, great. Well, first of all, I mean, was I correct, essentially, in the broad outlines of what I... Yes, yes. I mean, I might put it differently than talking Turkey. But yes, I mean, that's definitely the way I think there is a way forward. We need to be creative here. I mean, to me, creativity is the essence of diplomacy. It's not just going in and reiterating your talking points over and over and slamming your fist and getting red in the face and making military threats. Uh, you know, there are times when that all of that those options are, are appropriate, but but the, one has to put the balance of effort needs to be on articulating diplomatic proposals, options, and and by the way, you know, academics and analysts and yes, journalists should be engaged in this enterprise of of moving ideas around about how to break the cycle. Well, that's what we're doing. <laughs> okay, yes, <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. So. You know, yes, I guess we'll start at the beginning with the most current kind of what's on the table today and and why I think we should take it. There is a deal, it's called uh, Double Freeze, that Beijing has proposed, and it's been on the table now for, I think, for, let's say, more or less a, a year, 
although it's existed in different iterations, and I, I will claim uh, that my my book, 2015 book, had, had a kind of variation of this. But the Chinese proposal, this double freeze proposal, what it means is that North Korea would agree to freeze both nuclear and missile testing. And by the way, that's very significant, okay? Sure. Uh, getting one or the other would have, I would have called, called that a major win in the past, but getting both... Uh, to me, would be a huge development. And um, and by the way, North Korean diplomats are on record endorsing this proposal. So that, that really is very promising. And here, you know, let's also say uh, Russia has agreed to this proposal. Not so surprising. But maybe more surprising is that I, I understand that uh, the new president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, has also uh, endorsed it. So that's quite extraordinary. We have almost all the players in the in the whole Korean crisis, uh, with the exception of Washington and Tokyo, uh, signing on to this. Signing on. So, I mean, we're, we're part of the way there. Um, now, I'm, I'm a little shocked and disappointed that this hasn't gotten uh, more fully debated in the U.S. context. I mean, to me, you know, and we, we can talk about all kinds of psychological reasons why that is so, but let me suggest that we're, we're very reluctant to consider any proposal that we didn't come up with, which is... I think, kind of shameful. I mean, in a new world order, which I think we're in, a a multipolar world, we had better be thinking carefully about proposals from other countries. Okay, we've talked about what North Korea does. Well, what do we have to do? And that is, as you suggested, Kaiser, that we would suspend the annual exercise. And the annual exercises are very large. Uh, I think we, we try very hard to make each one bigger than the last one. Uh, involve moving, you know, thousands of soldiers around, a lot of equipment, uh, a lot of uh, testing. And, I, you know, I don't belittle the importance of that. And we take a lot of pride uh, in the U.S. military and the fact that our forces are not just not just have the right equipment, but we're practiced and skilled and we don't we, we take that extremely seriously. So I, I'm not calling that a small issue or, or carrot at all. It's a big one. But what we get is also big, as I suggested. Now, why do I think that this compromise is kind of feasible? I'll just suggest a few reasons. I think there are many reasons. But uh, one is this is enforceable, certainly from our perspective, right? We can monitor the missile test. We can monitor the nuclear test. So, I mean, we would know if if North Korea is cheating. And by, by the way, that's often the biggest problem with these kind of deals is how do you enforce them? How right. do you monitor them? So I think this one is easily monitored. Um, you don't even need any kind of really external, although it would, one would hope for external monitoring. So that's uh, one reason. Another is, I think, um, and here I, you know, I wouldn't broadcast this too loudly, but we could very subtly move the exercise, right? To some place like, gosh, uh, Alaska. <laughs> uh, that would be good for Alaska. I think the, I, I suspect the governor of Alaska would welcome such an enterprise, right? Not because they'd be out in the mountains shooting up wildlife or something like that, but because uh, Alaska is a very big place. It's a very mountainous place, a very cold place. That's a lot like uh, Korea. So what I'm saying is it would be a good match. It wouldn't be far and it wouldn't be hard. And yes, it would cost some money, but I think it would be very possible. Anyway, you know, the beauty of, of modern military technology is you can run all kinds of simulations. Obviously, it's preferable to exercise on the ground that you might fight on. You know, I, I'm not belittling that at all, but I do think we should consider this proposal very carefully. And by the way, this is reversible, right? I mean, we can always turn this back on at the first uh, instance of some kind of North Korean cheating. But North Korea has every incentive to go along with this. Well, and let me make talk- one, one last argument for this and why I think it's very important. And and because you can argue, well, you know, this doesn't do that much for us, actually, and it gives us them a lot. And, and worst of all, it gives them a win. Although I would turn that around and say, we have to give them some face 
The reason we're not getting anywhere with North Korea and, frankly, with China, too, is our refusal to recognize that they ha- it has to be a win-win. They have to get something out of the negotiation and they're not going to sign up. But this is maybe the biggest reason. In my mind, it matters whether North Korea has 20 nuclear weapons, roughly, which is about what they have today, I think, 20, I say, or 200. And we're headed, within a few years, they will go to 200, okay? But 20 is very different than 200. And I dare say, if you looked at what a a war looks like in these different circumstances, you might agree that it is worthy and important to try to stop North Korea where it is, to freeze this program. This is imperative. Um, you mentioned cheating, and it, it seems that um, you know many critics of the engagement camp, and that's a lot of people in the United States, um, have a kind of a been there, done that sort of mentality um, that say that the U.S. has tried engaging with the North numerous times in the past, and in every instance where a deal has been made, the North does not fulfill its obligations uh, and cheats. And in fact, I think it was Susan Thornton, the... Uh, um, acting assistant secretary Secretary of state uh for east asia we interviewed for this podcast and i i asked her you know why don't we just talk to north korea and that was more or less our answer was well every time we've tried they cheat what what is your response to that well i think you you gave a response but maybe elaborate on that a little bit how how verifiable is it i mean can we see whether they're refining visionable materials can we well, I, I don't think that's quite my question. My, my, I mean, that's not the question those people are asking. They're just saying there's no point in talking to them, aren't they? The, right. the critics of the engagement camp, that it just doesn't work. Um, yeah, I mean, there's this perception in the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment and in the larger body politic that they're going to cheat and cheat and cheat no matter what. And so there's just literally no nothing to be gained from, from working with these people, period. You know, I disagree on, on a variety of levels. I mean, one, in the nuclear world where, you know, a wrong decision, a misperception, you know, can, can cause the apocalypse, you're still going to talk no matter what. So that, you know, it doesn't even matter, uh, cheating aside. But let's, but I mean, I'll, I'll retreat to the point that that I do think these are quite verifiable. But I think, Jeremy, you're getting back to this history now. And if you go through the history, and I really have, I'll, I'll talk about this in, when we give recommendations later, but when you go through the history, it's complicated, folks. There are plenty of people who have looked at the agreed framework back in the 90s, that is the agreement that uh, we helped, that uh, Jimmy Carter helped to uh, spur on that averted war back in 1994, because we were on the brink of war that agreed framework, a lot of people thought not only was it a darn good deal, uh, would have saved us this whole mess, but that really there's a there's a lot of guilt to go along, go around. Let's say that far before uh, North Korea was accused of cheating, that they were complaining very loudly that the U.S. was not upholding its part of the bargain in terms of delivering both the oil shipments it had agreed to and also the building of the light water reactors that were part of the agreement. So what I'm saying is you you can tell a plausible story where these agreements, and that's not the only one, there were other agreements too, that fell apart because of the dynamics on both sides. And I dare say the complicated politics inside the Beltway, often where North Korean politics have been kind of, uh, where, where agreements there have been uh, lampooned and derisively described, have had, you know, very terrible results. Um, in my view, this was preventable. We didn't have to be here. I, I honestly, I put the greatest blame actually on um, President Bush, the younger Bush, the uh, you know who who fought the uh, the second Iraq War, uh, I think his speech, the the axis of evil speech, was the most devastating really on this 
uh, North Korean issue. I think at that point, once uh, not only did they see themselves as as targeted after 9-11 for, for no particular reason, uh, but then they saw an opening, too. They, they had running room because the U.S. was spooling up to go to war in Iraq, uh, that those events were most critical in spurring this. So, you know, the, the, it, as it it were, what comes around goes around. Right. But I, So I, it can't be really comforting to the proponents of, of compromise in Pyongyang to be looking at the fate of the, the Iranian nuclear deal right now either. I mean, with so many people in the GOP loudly criticizing that deal, I mean, it looks like the U.S. is a fickle... A partner and, and could just simply go back on anything that it did agree to. Well, that's an excellent point, Kaiser. I, I, I profoundly agree. I think, you know, we, we ought to be taking the Iran deal and showing that this is a model for how a country can reasonably be brought into the community of nations when it halts its nuclear program. And instead, we seem to be doing the opposite. I mean, everybody in Washington and the foreign policy establishment is taking shots at this thing as if it has no cost. But of course, all these uh, shots are being read in carefully in Pyongyang. And, and of course, the conclusion that they're coming around to is even, even if you could make the Herculean step of reaching a deal, a deal, you know, let's sign it, let's agree to it, let's try to bring North Korea out of its shell and, and uh, as it were, uh, buy them off so that, that they will stop this uh, world-threatening behavior. Uh, that would all be great, except you know, even in those circumstances, they would have to turn around and look at Iran and doubt that they would even be better off. And in fact, they might see themselves as a under a continuing threat. So I, I really do view that as problematic. We have to, uh, to, in order to get an agreement with, with North Korea, yes, we're going to have to behave differently with Iran. That's exactly right. That's right. Lyle, you've described the the double freeze deal, uh, especially the U.S. commitment to, if if they were to to accept this, to halt the military exercises, the annual exercises, uh, as a really big give. If if we were to do that, uh, presumably you have uh, a spiral of cooperation that would lead to that. That's this is the, your shtick, right? I mean, this is, and I think what what is really uh, very very valuable is the smaller concrete steps that we could take toward getting there. So presumably those those are part of the package of proposals. It looks like, you know, they're, they're, you're getting some buy-in on some of the bigger ideas. I, there was just just this weekend I saw uh, that people like Richard Lugar and, and uh, New Mexico Governor uh, Bill Richardson, uh, William J. Perry, you know, f- former Secretary of Defense, all signed this letter uh, basically calling for direct talks with North Korea, which jives pretty well with, with your own prescriptions. Tell us, how do we how do we get there? That's great. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate the uh, vote of confidence. And I, I, I mean, I'd like to hope that maybe um, my uh, promoting cooperation has, has helped to um, move the dialogue in that direction. I, 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 we'll see where we end up. But I am encouraged by this latest letter. I think it's, honestly, I think it's a bit unrealistic because I think the letter, as I saw it, it, it uh, suggests we exchange um, talks for a freeze. Uh, in, in effect, double freeze. It's the same, except instead of putting the exercise on hold, we, we get ta- direct talks. And I, I just don't think that uh, Pyongyang would go for that. But it, it's worth a try. I'm not, a, I'm, you know, I'm for any <laughs> proposal that tries to move us in a cooperative direction. Absolutely. But um, Maybe, maybe I'll walk you through uh, my cooperation spiral because I think it's good to propose a set of grand bargains and that generally has to be done. I, I'm full, all for that. 
But I, I do suggest that we need to build trust where there isn't trust. And, and it's not just in U.S.-North Korean relations, also in U.S.-China relations. So uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of trust there either, or, or dare say U.S.-Russian relations. So we have to start building trust, and those can start with small steps. So um, maybe can I run through a few small sure, steps? Sure, just a couple of them. All right. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, to me, you, you need to start small Symbol. Let's go think about the the uh, the ping pong team, right? The famous ping pong team that went to China, ping pong diplomacy, right? It was it had some symbol. It it got people excited, but it wasn't that wasn't the breakthrough. There were so many difficult issues still to handle, but the symbols mattered. And yes, we could think in terms of basketball players and so forth. But some of the small steps that I'm proposing would be little things like: Could we get uh, the U.S. and China to talk reasonably about? the Korean problem in in a security dimension. And here I propose, for example, that our militaries, which by the way, you know, let's not forget, the U.S. and, and Chinese militaries were, were at war literally on the Korean peninsula. How about the, the leader of U.S. forces Korea and the leader of the uh, Shenyang military district uh, meet up in uh, South Korea and take a stroll through some of those battlefields? Remember how misperception led to conflict, how, how much blood was uh, lost just to reach a stalemate, uh, to me that could have a very powerful effect on uh, both military establishments in the U.S. and China in particular to bring them around to a uh, where they can start thinking about compromising Korea. Another small step I propose would be to kind of bring, let's say, bring North Korea out of the cold by making them part of a, let's call it a four-power agreement, a maritime agreement, that would focus on kind of easier issues like fisheries, and fisheries are, are not a small issue no, in, the, uh, in the Yellow Sea, uh, right? Think about the crab fishery and so forth. And, and uh, lives have been lost, uh, and, and there have been skirmishes on the water that have been really uh, uh, dangerous. So this is actually a great area to start. There's many things that could be done besides fisheries. I mean, there, there are even mines from the... Uh, from the back from the Korean War, that could be that's been done in other places of the world. That could help build trust between the militaries. But even joint, joint mine, yeah, a kind of right. joint anti-mine uh, effort, and uh, that would bring uh, North Korea out of the cold a little bit. And after that, I think the U.S. could honestly consider a, a even pulling out a symbolic number of forces from the peninsula. I think that has to be on the table. It's kind of like, it would be a small number. It could be like a, um, a thousand or, or some num- low number like that, but a symbolic withdrawal, a kind of statement that if, if, the, you know, if we can start to move through these baby steps, that the United States is dangling the possibility that a Korea under a kind of new set of rules, a denuclearized peninsula, doesn't necessarily need to have U.S. forces on it. Uh, I think that would be a very positive message to both Pyongyang and Beijing, it would be giving that kind of face. Now, I'm not talking about a real component of those forces, a warfighting component. I'm talking about a symbolic message. Down the line, as we walk through the spiral, later one could imagine a kind of more substantive uh, withdrawal of some of those forces. You know, here's the essence, though, of where I think we make some uh, bigger steps. And the double freeze is absolutely welcome. But to me, you know, we have to get beyond a freeze if we want to get where we want to go. Um, and here are the suggestions that I'm making in order to make that giant leap, um, that, that final leap, say. And, and, you know, I think the freeze would be a prerequisite, right? We have to stop, you know, this current slide toward war. But, but after that, where can we go? How can we uh, stabilize and even uh, denuclearize? And here I have two suggestions. One is that I think at, at, um, 
you know, at its in its most basic form, the root of the reason North Korea is proliferating is, be, of course, because it's insecure. It's it's fearful. Uh, this the the nuclear uh, deterrent is its regime survival. So we have to find another way to assure that Pyongyang has regime survival. Okay, and that's very difficult. Now you can try what John Kerry did in the Iran context and say, and just put it out there and say, hey, we're we're, we're not going to engage in regime change here. And and I, I think that probably is useful, but words are words, right? We have to go beyond that to action. So here's my kind of radical suggestion for how to assure regime survival. And this is controversial, of course, but I think it has a um, could be successful. And here, what I recommend is that they reinvigorate the security treaty linking China and North Korea. And by the way, I think Russia could be added to that. Uh, so what we would have is effectively Chinese and Russian forces guaranteeing North Korean security. Now, of course, there are practical difficulties with that. But let's face it, North Korea has been dependent on other countries in various forms. And North Korea is alone not a weak country. But what I'm saying is I'm even advocating for an insertion of Chinese conventional forces and maybe Russian as well into North Korea as a kind of tripwire that would be the ultimate guarantee of North Korea security. So I think that should be on the table. I think the U.S. should consider even substantive withdrawals in the case that they do get denuclearization. I think some uh, withdraw further withdrawals, large-scale withdrawals of U.S. forces. By the way, U.S. forces have been withdrawn from the peninsula in the past by, by Republican administrations, interestingly, under Bush, uh, Rumsfeld, uh, took troops out to send them to Iraq and Nixon, interestingly. And by the way, when Nixon did that, the, the, the Korean Peninsula saw greater stability. One more, um, I think I would call it an innovation here. And that is, we, look, we're far enough down this line with North Korea. They are not going to let international inspectors back into North Korea to try to verify denuclearization. It's not going to happen. The feelings are too raw especially given what happened in Iraq with the inspectors and so forth. So what I'm suggesting as an innovation is that we have Chinese inspectors, and they could be Russian too, but in other words, a trusted agent, somebody trusted by Pyongyang. Now, I believe that both Russia, but in particular China, have great incentive to do this effectively, and they can use video cameras and all the rest. But I believe by putting inspection in the hands of China, that this would be a major step forward and a kind of innovation to start to draw this toward a, a, because we talked about the importance of verification in any agreement, it's absolutely critical. So I want to suggest those two innovations, both strengthening the China-North Korea defense treaty effectively, which has been moribund for a while, but I think has to be reinvigorated to give North Korea the security to denuclearize, and then this innovation about how it could be verified by China. China has every incentive to make sure denuclearization goes smoothly and uh, without uh, without any kind of cheating. So Washington is not wrong to suggest that China has a role to play. It's just not the role that they had in mind. It's just not isolating. It's not just bandwagoning with us to to, to further isolate. Right. We but actually rather need paradoxically. More we don't want to isolate. China. We need right. we need stronger China North Korea ties. That's the only way we get to denuclearization. Not likely to be a very popular idea, but it's it's I give it you know ten points out of ten for innovation. <laughs> Thank you. We really wish we had more time because there's so much more to talk about, but we'll save something for next time, right, Lyle? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. So, Lyle Goldstein, thanks so much for taking the time and for making the track all the way down here from the Naval War College to Manhattan to join us. Let's stick around and let's make some recommendations. What do you say? 
Sounds great. All right. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe, of course, to the newsletter at SubChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like the Seneca podcast, by all means, go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play. These things give me a reason to live. Uh, this really helps us also. Uh, so it helps people to find the podcast. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you start us off? What do you have for us? Something that may be of limited appeal, depending on our audience. But if you like surfing uh, and you happen surfing? to be surfing, surfing, <laughs> <laughs> what is surfing? <laughs> surfing on a board in the ocean with waves. Okay. Uh, New York City, to my amazement, has a really, really nice break at uh, Rockaway Bay uh, in far off Queens. And the water's a little cold, but and the locals are a little nasty, but it's it's a really nice break. <laughs> I never thought I'd hear someone on a surfboard swear at me in a New Jersey accent, but <laughs> oh really? What did you do to, 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 to earn that? That's funny. Okay, excellent. So surfing Rockaway Bay, Rockaway, Rockaway, Rockaway Beach, Beach, Rockaway Bay. Yeah. Lyle, what do you have for us? Uh, well, I I have don't have something. I wish I could recommend a good beach in. Uh, North Korea or Northeast China, or something like that, or on Kamchatka Peninsula to uh, find the third a good don't break. Surf. But I'm going to be a little bit more boring than Jeremy and recommend a uh, very fine book on the North Korea issue. I think it's the best. Um, the author is Jonathan Pollock. He's at Brookings. Oh, yeah. And the title is um, No Exit North Korea, Nuclear Weapons, and International Security. It was written a few years ago, but it's extremely relevant and prescient, and he uh, is able to uh, foresee a lot of what's happened. But more importantly, what he does is walk through all of this history. You know, how did we get here? Um, and and this is really well explained, all the ins and outs of China and North Korea relations and uh, Russia's involvement as well. And it's just, it's incredibly enlightening. And I think you will come to a better understanding of the whole issue and its complexities if you uh, start with this very fine book, No Exit. By oh, I, that's a great Pollock. recommendation. I think that's a, that would be a, a perfect companion piece to, or companion book to this podcast, uh, of course, along with your book. Excellent recommendation. So I'm going to go with, you know, my old standby, a musical recommendation. Actually, this is sort of a, uh, a, a, a set of recommendations made to me that I'm going to pass on. Uh, NPR's Anthony Kuhn, who, of course, is one of my favorite reporters based in Beijing, he and I, it turns out, have very similar musical tastes. He's, he's a real big fan of jazz fusion, a much maligned genre of music, but he's made some excellent recommendations to me, including the band Snarky Puppy. Uh, you should What you should do is watch their live videos on YouTube. They've got a ton of them. Uh, they, they, just a gigantic fusion ensemble of uh, astonishingly talented musicians. So snarky puppy. Uh, the guitarist Andy Timmons, who's sort of an old, you know, hair metal guy, but also a big studio musician, just a, a fantastically good guitar player, great tone, plays a lot of, uh, different genres of music. And finally, a band called The Aristocrats. The Aristocrats are a trio, uh, led by one of the, uh, probably, I think, He's generally regarded as, as one of the best uh, living guitarists. He's won all sorts of, of, of awards. His name is Guthrie Govain. I saw them in, in Istanbul, of all places, uh, and saw them live, and they're just mind-blowing. So those are my recommendations. Uh, thanks again. Thanks again for, for coming out, Lyle. It's, it was great to see you. 
So and glad to be here. I uh, uh, hope to come back. Not it, too long. Jeremy, as always, you know, good oh, to see yeah. you. Uh, we will see you again real soon. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page, which is now merged with the SubChina Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. Follow us on Twitter, also merged now at Seneca Podcast, but now we're merging into at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.